Well, thank you so much for being here on our final summer super study. So we have the faithful few here. Apparently our church does not struggle with anxiety. So this is good news. Apparently you are the only ones who struggle with anxiety. So thanks for coming. You and me. Couple quick announcements. Just so you know, we do not have Wednesday night services the rest of this month and August. So we get a little bit of a break and then our grow groups will kick off again in September, just so you know. Also, I just want to say, he's not in here. He's out in the hallway. But I'm so grateful to Mike. What a joy to be co-laboring with him and and just teaching this series together. He, He does a phenomenal job. Did you guys appreciate his, I mean, his, I heard so many great things about his messages, the one on forgiveness, and so I just really appreciate Mike, want to express publicly my thanks to him. And also for almost every topic, almost every, now I think I can say every topic, we have little mini booklets that talk about these things uh, in our resource center. We use them in counseling, we use them in discipleship, sometimes Shelley gives them to me. Yeah, think about that. The hunter becomes the prey. Um, Panic attacks, anxiety, overcoming anxiety, relief for worried people. And uh, what do you do when you worry all the time? Just resources. And it may be for you. It may be for someone you know that struggles with it. And you can give this to them. Uh, It's a biblical resource with scripture. So I just want to encourage you to, to use those Um, Tonight, we're talking about worry and anxiety. Sometimes I think it's most helpful to see how do you help someone who's afraid? How do you help someone who's worried? And so tonight, I I spared no expense and brought you the very best counseling. We are going to watch some professional counseling. So Chris, go ahead and uh, roll the video, and then I'm going to talk about it afterwards. Bigman, Janet Carlisle referred me. Oh, yes. Still uh, being uh, buried alive in a box. Yes. Yes, that's me. <laughs> Should I lay down? Oh, no, no, no. We don't, we don't do that anymore. Just, just have a seat. And uh, let, let me uh, tell you a, a bit about our, our billing. I, um, I charge $5 for the, for the first five minutes. And, and then absolutely nothing after that. How, how, how does that sound? That sounds great. <laughs> Too good to be true, as a matter of fact. <laughs> well, I can I can almost guarantee you that that our session won't last the full uh, the full five minutes. Now, um, <laughs> we don't do any insurance billing, so you would either have to pay in in cash or by check. <clears throat> wow. Okay. And uh, and I I don't make change. <laughs> All right. <laughs> and go. <clears throat> Go. Well, tell what? me, tell me about the problem that you wish to address. Oh, okay. Uh, well, I have this fear of being buried alive in a box. <laughs> I just, I start thinking about being buried alive, and I begin to panic. Has has, has anyone ever ever tried to to bury you alive in a box? No, no, but. 
truly thinking about it does make my life horrible. I mean, I can't go through tunnels or be in an elevator or in a house, anything boxy. So what, what you're saying is you're, uh, you're claustrophobic. Uh, yes. Yes, that's it. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, let's go, Catherine. I'm, uh, I'm going to uh, say two words to you right now. I, I want you to listen to them very, very carefully. Then I want you to take them out of the office with you and incorporate them in, into your life. Well, shall I uh, write them down? Well, it, if it makes you comfortable, it's just two words. Most we find most people can uh, can remember them. <laughs> okay. You ready? Yes. Okay. Here, here they are. Stop it! <laughs> I'm sorry. Stop it! Stop it! Yes. S T O P. New word. IT. So, what are you saying? <laughs> you, you know, it's funny. I, I, I say two simple words, and I cannot tell you the amount of people who say exactly the same thing you're saying. I mean, this, you know, this is not Yiddish, Catherine. This is English. Stop it. So, I should just stop it. There you go. I mean, you, you, you don't want to go through life being scared of being buried alive in a box, do you? I mean, that... Sounds, sounds frightening. It is. Then stop it! I, I can't. I mean, it's been with me no, since no, childhood. No, no, no. No, we, 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 we don't go there. Just, just stop. So I should just stop being afraid of being buried alive in a box. You got it. Good go. Well, it's only been... It's only been three minutes, so that will be um, uh, three dollars. I only have a five, so. Well, I, I don't, I don't make change. <laughs> then I, I guess I'll take the full five minutes. Fine. All right. Well, what other uh, problems would you, would you like to address? <clears throat> Whew, uh, I'm bulimic. I stick my fingers down my throat. Stop it! <laughs> Not of some kind. Don't, don't do that. But I, I'm compelled to. My mom used to call me no, Fatty. No, no, no. No, we, we don't go there. But I've been having this dream. No, we don't go there either. But my horoscope did say... We definitely don't go there. Just, <laughs> just stop it. What, what, what else? Well, I have self-destructive relationships with men. Stop it! <laughs> you you want to be with a man, don't you? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yes. Well, then stop it. Don't be such a big baby. I wash my hands a lot. That's all right. It is? I, I wash my hands all the time. There's a lot of germs out there. Uh -huh. Yeah, don't, don't, uh, don't worry about that one. I'm afraid to drive. Well, stop it! How, how are you going to get around? Get in the car and drive, you, you kook. Stop it! You stop it! You stop it! What's, what's the problem, Kat? I, I don't like this. I don't like this therapy at all. You're just telling me to stop it. And, and, you, and you, don't, you don't like that? No, I don't. So you think we're, we're moving too fast, is that it? Yes. Yes, I do. 
All right, then let me uh, let me uh, give you ten words that I I think will uh, clear everything up for you. Uh, you want you want to get a pad and a pencil for this one? All right. Are you ready? Mm -hmm. All right. Here are the ten words. Stop it, or I'll bury you alive in a box. That is not a reflection of our counseling ministry here at Lakeside Bible Church, just so you know. Well, that was an attempt to bring a little bit of lightness to this topic, and uh, it's actually a video that I've shown when I've taught biblical counseling before. Uh, why is that so funny? Because it's a parody of what? Of really what the world is trying to do. And so I think that's part of why it, it makes it humorous. But is it funny? Do people literally have fears and phobias and worry and anxiety and all of those things? Absolutely. Um, and so I don't know that Bob Newhart would make a very good counselor. But let's talk about worry and anxiety tonight. Um, I think some sins are so common among Christians that they appear to be almost respectable, almost acceptable behavior. I think worry and anxiety would be in the top five. I think many of us struggle even to know how to talk about anxiety, talk about worry. I mean, what are some of the terms that you hear people use when they don't want to say, I'm anxious or worried? I'm concerned. I'm stressed out. Scared, I'm bothered, troubled, disturbed, all of those things. And to add to the confusion of this, we're not even sure what to call it, but there's multiple solutions offered to us. You have, and I went through this with, when I taught on depression, so I'm not going to cover it tonight, but you have the world's view, and then you have this middle category where it's the best of the world and the best of the Bible, and then... Over here, you have what we strive to do here is biblical counseling. In fact, just to show you the danger of this center group of mixing secular psychology with Christian truth, I have a quote from an integrated Christian counseling book. Uh, this is, book is called Worry-Free Living. Doesn't that sound like a great book? I mean, you could probably go to Lifeway and pick this up. Here's what they said. These are Christians. Here's what they said. We suggest setting aside 15 minutes in the morning and another 15 minutes in the evening for active worry. I love that. If concerns surface during other times of the day, the person should jot them down on a card and vow to deal with them during the designated period. Worry-free living involves confining the natural worry we all feel into a designated time slot of only 1% of a 12-hour day. End quote. Now, what are they saying? And I'm just telling you, one of the authors of this book, Minerthrin Myers, it was Myers, was a professor at Dallas Seminary. When I took the Christian counseling class at Dallas Theological Seminary, he came in and taught one of my classes, the guy who wrote this or was co-writing this book. It was an interesting class. Does this sound like what Jesus and Paul are saying? Are Jesus and Paul saying, hey, confine your worry to, to 1% of a 12-hour day? 
once in the morning and once at night. That's okay. What did Jesus and Paul say? Stop it. (laughs) They said, don't worry. This just adds to more confusion. Because it sounds like these guys are saying, it's okay. I mean, what is active worry? I'm actively worried about a lot. But only in certain time periods? Well, anxiety is one of the most common problems that people across the world face today. But thankfully, the Bible is not silent. The Bible offers counsel to wipe away sinful worry. And so tonight, we're going to examine four aspects of worry so that we might learn how to deal with worry and anxiety God's way. I'm using worry and anxiety interchangeably. So first of all, let's define worry. What does worry define? We have handouts in the back with the outline. Feel free to get up and get one if you didn't have one, or Chris can bring some forward. Let's define worry. First of all, I'm going to give you a very short, brief view of what clinical psychiatry says worry and anxiety is. Again, this is the world. This is secular. I'm not going to go in depth because a lot of what I covered in depression would apply to worry. So they would talk about worry as being, they call it generalized anxiety disorder or panic disorder or OCD. You realize OCD is an anxiety disorder. Because you're, compul- you're obsessive compulsing about something that you're worrying or anxious about. Uh, did I lock the door? And so you've got to lock it five times to make sure it's locked. Uh, those kind of things. It's, it's worry. It's anxiety. Uh, there's a number of other ones. Uh, social anxiety. It's the one person who doesn't want to be in, in groups or, or crowds. Uh, statistics state that about 19% of all adults in the U.S. have been diagnosed with an anxiety disorder in the last year. Think about that. According to statistics, the National Institute of Mental Health, they say one out of five U.S. Americans has been diagnosed with one of these disorders. That's huge. Common signs and symptoms include sleep problems, restlessness, muscle tension. Someone who's worrying, their, their muscles are tight. Feeling tired all the time, difficulty controlling the worry, irritability, feeling out of control. Here it is, panic attack. Have you ever heard someone say, I had a panic attack? What do they mean? What, what does panic attack sound like? Is panic on the outside or the inside? Something on the outside is attacking me, and I have no, what? Control. As you're going to see tonight, that's actually the exact opposite. Anxiety is not something on the outside attacking me on the inside. Anxiety is because I'm faced with circumstances and trouble around me and responsibilities and my heart, I don't know how to respond or I choose not to respond rightly and therefore I get anxious. It's exactly the opposite. So if somebody uses the word panic attack, don't confront them. Don't say, hey, you're going to hell if you use that term. That's not biblical. That's not the point. The point is simply to understand when someone uses the term panic attack, what are they typically referring to? Racing heart, fluttering heart, uh, the sweaty palms, uh, they can't breathe, they feel like the walls are closing in on them. That, they're experiencing something real. So if I'm doing counseling and someone comes and says, hey, I had a panic attack the other day, I'm like, well, do you know, biblically, a panic attack is not the biblical, I'm not going to do that. At some point, I'm going to explain that so they understand. But just understand, that's what the world calls it. Panic attack. And sudden and intense fear is another symptom. So sometimes people who struggle with worry and anxiety, they'll, they'll say, I have a churning stomach. Or I have cold hands or fluttery feelings. 
They're preoccupied, they're obsessed, they feel overwhelmed. Sometimes they use words like that. Now, just like depression, clinical psychiatry, they do not fully understand what the cause is. They think it might be genetic, they think it might be environmental factors, uh, they think it, it might be chemical, they think it might be genetic. And so, just like depression, they're not quite sure what is the cause. And in the same way, what do you think the treatments are? Almost the exact same as depression. They're going to medicate you. And even on the National Institute of Mental Health and the DSM-5, remember I explained that in depression, that's what these psychologists use to diagnose these disorders, it says these do not cure anxiety. What are they treating? They're not treating the cause of anxiety. What are they actually trying to treat? Symptoms. Yeah. So they're going to give you medicine. They're going to give you cognitive therapy or behavioral therapy. Uh, They're going to teach you to meditate. In fact, one exercise I saw because of muscle tension, they teach you, it's almost kind of a Middle East, or not Middle East, Eastern type of thinking and you calm yourself and you meditate and you center yourself and then you relax each muscle one at a time and that helps relieve the muscle stress down through your body and you just go from your head to your toe and then you get up and what happened to your problems you feel better I'm not going to deny someone that relief but then they go back out the door and what are they faced with (laughs) did the problem go away Did they learn how to deal with the problem? No. And so they even admit these are simply just treating the symptoms. It's not super hopeful. Now what about the Word of God? The Word of God. Well, the Greek word for worry is merimnao. It's a combination of two Greek words. The first one is merizo, which is a verb meaning to divide. And then the second one is nous which in Greek means mind. So what does worry mean in biblical Greek? A divided mind. That's literally what it means. So in the Bible, this word is often translated different ways. It's translated worry. Sometimes it's anxious or anxiety. And sometimes it's even translated care. So let me give you a definition. I thought I had this on the handout, but I I don't think I left it on there. Worry is an over-anxious concern regarding the future and things that keeps a person from fulfilling current biblical responsibilities. Let me say it again. Worry is an over-anxious concern regarding the future and things that keeps a person from fulfilling current biblical responsibilities. So what do I mean by that? I I simply mean that worry is over-anxious concern. Something happened in the past that's affecting now or the future. Something I'm afraid is going to happen or not happen in the future. And as a result of this over-anxious concern, I can't handle it. I I can't fulfill my responsibilities that God has given me. And so it can be a preoccupation with the future. Things like war. Things like sickness. I mean, Bob was joking about, no, I wash my hands, there's germs out there. You realize there are people who wash their hands till they're raw because they are so afraid that they will catch something. That's a prison. They bleach themselves 
to clean themselves. Can you imagine using bleach? They're concerned with sickness. They're concerned with a loss of job. They're concerned with not finding a job. They're concerned with the future of their marriage, the safety of their child. I mean, just think about all the things with your kid. Are they eating right? Are they hanging out with the right friends? Are they playing in the street? Are they climbing trees? Why are they climbing trees? How high are they climbing trees? Do they know how to climb a tree? Are they going to find someone someday? Hopefully not him. Hopefully not her. So much to worry about. Are they going to learn to love Jesus? Are you concerned about that? You should be. How about the stove left on? You know what I worry about? Getting up here and missing one page. Do you realize that I count these pages at least three times before I get up to preach? And my family mocks me mercilessly. Could you please confront them for me? Why do I do that? Because I don't have this memorized, and if I get up here and I don't have it, I'm like... And, and that's like the constant dream that you have where you got up in front and you're in your underwear. This is it for pastors. So that's the kind of things. Now, let me make a distinction. Because as we're talking about this over-anxious worry, this is not to be confused with the diligent care and concern toward your responsibilities. Think about that. There is, there is a diligent concern about the responsibilities that God gave us. In fact, let me give you two biblical examples. Second uh, Corinthians eleven twenty eight. Second Corinthians eleven twenty eight. Paul's concern for the churches. He talks about how he has this burden. This and it's the word. It's our Greek verb. It, it, it's the this concern for all the churches. What does that mean? He feels responsible for them. He feels the weight of that. So, what does that responsibility do for the apostle Paul? He climbs into a cave, huddles into a little ball, and cries himself to sleep. I can't handle it. Is that what happens? What does that God-given concern do for the Apostle Paul? What does it motivate him to do? He prays, and then he what? He writes them letters, and then he what? He goes and visits them, and then he what? He, he preaches to them. He trains them. He equips them. He loves them. He confronts them. What, so what does that God-given concern, that care, do to the Apostle Paul? Motivates him to action. There's another example, too, in Philippians 2.20, where Paul is talking about, uh, to the Philippians, he's saying, hey, I have no one else who is genuinely concerned about your welfare as Timothy, that word genuinely concerned is our word. He is caring for you. And as a result, Paul concerned for them. He sends Timothy because he knows Timothy cares for them. And what will Timothy do when he gets to Philippi? Minister to them, love them, care for them. Is that sinful worry? Not based on what we know. Think about this with me. Who created you with the ability to care? Genesis one twenty six. let us make man in our what? Image. Does God care about you? Does he? Think about it. He cared enough that he sent his son to die for you. And when he made you and me in his image, he gave us the capacity to care. The capacity to be concerned. 
and what should that capacity to concern and be in care for people do? Drive us to action. Not anxiousness, worry, sinful, but genuine, God-honoring care and concern. And what do people do typically when they can't cope with that responsibility or that weight or they care just too much? How do they cope with it? They medicate themselves. They, they turn to alcohol. Some people are like, wow, I can't handle this right now. My family, my marriage is blowing up. I'm going to go work a lot. And they work. And that's how they numb They care about what's happening. It's out of their control. They're worried about what's going to happen in the future, and what do they do? What what God has given them is the ability to be concerned about that, that what should it motivate them to do? Hey, I I want to be a part of the solution. How do I help my family? And instead, what do they do? They can't cope with it, so they numb themselves with fitness or work or something else. God gave you the capacity to care. Now, you guys know we experience something incredibly Worrisome when my wife got diagnosed with a brain tumor about, uh, about two and a half years ago. There was a fine line, I'm just telling you, a very fine line between genuine concern and sinful worry when I found out that my wife had a brain tumor. Godly concern over my wife's health drove us to pray. I have never prayed so much in my life. Although now with my girls and boys orbiting them, you know what I mean? coming into their existence and them fluttering their eyelids and eyelashes at the boys. And I think I'm praying a lot now too. But I think that season when I thought my wife had cancer in her brain, I don't think we've ever prayed so much. We're on our knees. It drove us to minister to each other spiritually. Shell recognized, even though she had the tumor and this dizziness and the headache and all the, the symptoms that went with that brain tumor, she recognized I was struggling And so we downloaded messages. I mean, we went and, I remember we went and got Piper's Don't Waste Your Cancer. I was like retitling it, Don't Waste Your Wife's Brain Tumor. We listened to to good messages by others. This godly concern drove us to do everything we could to help her physically. We went to MD Anderson. Why? Because they're one of the best. So we went to get help. That's what that godly concern drove us to do. Doctors, would you please help us? We're not going to put our hope and our trust in you. We're going to put our hope and our trust in God. But we would be grateful if you could help my wife work through this. And we strove to please God through the trial. To please him in all respects. That's what godly concern does when you're faced with something that seems overwhelming. So how does godly concern then become sinful worry? I've got these seven steps there for you on your handout. First of all, your thoughts are focused on controlling the future. Now think about this. When I'm thinking of my wife with a brain tumor, what is it that I want to control in the future? There's a a brain tumor in her brain. Get it out. That's what I was fixated on. I was was thinking and focusing on this future event. Number two, your thoughts are unproductive. We we call this the spin cycle. It just goes round and round and round. Think about this with me. When I first found out we're in Albania, this this was my spin cycle. Shelly has a brain tumor. It must be cancer. If it's cancer, she's going to die. And if she dies, what am I going to do? 
30 seconds go by. My wife has a brain tumor. It's probably cancer. She's going to die. Am I going to get remarried? I thought that. And then again, another one. Over and over and over again. Have you ever had that? Where you get caught in that spin cycle of worry and the first 24 hours, I was struggling with that, just going round and round. Third, it controls you instead of you controlling it. Often when we struggle with worry and anxiety, it affects our sleep. Because I'm lying there looking at the ceiling and what am I thinking about? All the things that I can't control. And what else am I thinking about? All the things that might happen or might not happen in in this case. Are they, are they going to be able to get it out? Is it cancer? Is she going to die? Is she going to live? All of these things. I couldn't turn, off, turn it off. It was controlling me. And it, number four, it causes you to neglect your God-given responsibilities and relationships. Now for me, you guys have heard me preach and teach enough to know that when something is broken, what do I do? What do I do? I fix it. Now, can that be a strength? It can be. Yeah, it's, it makes us productive. Does my wife need me to fix this when she just finds out she has a brain tumor? What does she need? Me to lead her spiritually. I'm on the internet. I'm researching. I'm trying to figure out what this is. I'm trying to get airlines set. Uh, the kids, I'm like, just pack, just pack. I'm, I'm getting short-tempered with them. I, what's happening? Because of my over-anxious worry for the future, what would happen with my wife and her health, it begins to control me, causes me to neglect my God-given responsibilities. I start hurting the very people that God has called me to care about and serve. Number five, it starts to damage your body. Has anyone experienced this? Season of worry, they call them what? What happens in your tum-tum? Yeah, ulcers. Sometimes ulcers are caused by anxiety and worry and care. That's, that's just one example of a way that it can begin to affect. What about stress and headaches? Have you ever gone through a season of worry and anxiety and the stress that you feel and you literally feel like you're tense? And, and there, there were times where I would be like, wow, I have got to relax and that's why that, med- that, that thing where you kind of slowly release each muscle, there's actually some wisdom to that. And just, i got to relax. Again, that's just treating some of the effects, the physical effects of worry. Number six, you start losing hope instead of finding answers. Start losing hope. This is hopeless. This is never going to get resolved. And number seven, you shut down and you stop functioning. Now, thankfully, it never got this far for me. Number six and seven, it it never got that far. Thankfully, God blessed me. But I definitely understand steps one to five. I was there. (laughs) It it was a fine line, and I was way over unto sinful worry, especially in those first 24 to 48 hours. But that's how godly concern, which is God-honoring, and God gave us that ability to be concerned and care and serve and love. That's how it becomes sinful worry. Now, something that typically comes up in your mind at this point is, well, what about planning? Does the Bible say something about planning and not worrying about what? Tomorrow, because what will happen tomorrow? It will what? Take care of itself. Look at James 4, 
13, planning that acknowledges God's sovereignty is not worry. Did you hear me? Planning that acknowledges God's sovereignty is not worry. James 4.13, come now you who say today or tomorrow we'll go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business, make profit, yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You're just a vapor that appears for a little while and then it vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or do that. We should plan. Planning is good. God gave us the capacity to plan. But we shouldn't worry about our plan. Rather, we trust in the Lord about our plan. And what is verse 15? If the Lord wills. And that's the key. God, I'm going to make this plan. I'm not going to worry about it because I've gotten counsel. I've not made a hasty, rash decision. I prayed about it. I've made sure that I was, was not violating biblical principles or precepts. And I believe that this is what you're calling me to do. So I'm going to step in faith and make this plan and not worry about it. But I'm going to hold it with a closed hand or an open hand. If you hold that plan with a closed hand and it starts to go awry, what tends to be the result? Worry and anxiety. So you make that plan to the glory of God. You say, God, your will be done, not mine. And if you want to change it, that's okay. So that's an important, important part to make. Because if I get anxious because it doesn't go my way, what is that? It's arrogance. It's pride. God, why are you not fulfilling this the way that I planned? Do I know better than God? Those of you who know me, you're like, no, Chris, you don't. We know you. Let's look at the second main point. Worry is sinful. Turn with me to Matthew 6. Again, there's at least two main texts that deal with this subject. There's a number of other ones, too. These are probably the most well-known. Matthew 6. Matthew 6 really starting up from 19 all the way to 34. I'm just going to point out three times Christ forbids worry. Notice verse 25. What does it say? For this reason I say to you what? What does your Bible say? Do not be worried. In the Greek that's an imperative. It's a command. And then notice in verse 31, do not worry then. Verse 34, do not worry. Is Jesus saying it's okay to actively worry 1% of a 12-hour day? Is that what Jesus is saying? Is he saying, don't worry about most things, but this 1% you can worry about? Is that what he's saying? No, when Jesus says, do not be anxious, what does he mean? Stop it. Bob Newhart apparently had it right. And it carries the idea of stopping what is already being done. So notice, Christ forbids worry. And it's interesting because it says, for this reason. For this reason. Well, why does he say for this reason in verse 25? What is he talking about in verse 24? No one can serve two masters. So Christian, because you're not serving the world, because you're not serving self, because God is your master for this reason, do not be anxious. Don't worry. God is your master. And what does he say? Don't worry about what? About your life. It's all inclusive. It's mental. It's physical. It's emotional. It's spiritual. 
It's financial. So when we worry sinfully, it's really a a lack of contentment in God and his faithful provision. He's my master. I'm being anxious about my life because I don't, what? I don't trust him. Well, turn over to Philippians 4, 6. Keep your finger in Matthew 6. We're going to come back here in just a moment, but I want you to see these are the two texts that we'll probably spend most of our time in. Philippians 4, 6. We know this one by heart, don't we? You're like... Philippians 4, 6. Be anxious for... Don't you hate it when Paul does that? Nothing. No, Paul, there's legitimately some things that I should worry about. No. Be anxious for nothing. But in, here he does it again, everything. In case you miss the nothing part, he adds the everything. Don't be anxious about nothing, but in everything, what? Yeah, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. I don't like that one bit. Let your request be made known to God. And again, this is also an imperative. It's present active. Present means it's a continuous action. Active means you are the one to do this. Passive means someone's doing it to you. Active means you are to do the action. So the Greek grammar communicates that this is a command that we are to do continually, actively. Don't be anxious. Don't worry. So based on this text, is it ever okay to worry or be sinfully anxious? Are you ever justified? Answer? No. Christ's teaching in Matthew 6 exposes the two sinful roots of worry, idolatry and unbelief, and the cure for each of these. So these last two main points are really just walking, we're going to walk through Matthew 6 and exposing the two sinful roots of worry. If you struggle with worry, if you, someone in your family struggles with worry, if you have a friend or someone in your community that you are friends with that struggles with worry, it doesn't take long of asking questions before typically God will expose one or both of these sinful roots. So let's look at the first one. We're back in Matthew 6. Worry is idolatry, and the solution is repentance. So idolatry means to worship someone or something other than the true and living God. Again, I don't need to expound on this too much. We have been taught well on idolatry. It means giving yourself to some person, giving yourself to a goal, idea, a concern, or an object rather than Christ. Putting your desires above God's desires. Your desires above his commands. What you feel is more important than what he tells you to do or how to respond And it's allowing your concerns over the future and things to be more important than thinking and acting God's way. So really, when we worry, what we're really saying is, God, I know you mean well by what you say. I know you mean your your intentions are, are the best. But I'm not sure if you can actually help me. I know you mean well, God, but this is huge. I don't think you can fix this. That's really what we're saying. The reality is something else has captured my heart. I'm no longer trusting in the Lord. I'm trusting in that other thing or that person. Now, what about the past? Because even my definition, it's worrying about over-anxious concern about something in the future. Sometimes something happened in the past that rocked your world. And because of what happened in the past, you're concerned about how it might affect now or tomorrow. So it is possible that you've got to go back to deal with something in the past to be able to rightly respond to the future. 
So think about someone who was sexually abused. When did that happen? Back then. I mean, I, I have counseled people who had it happen 25 years ago. And then something happened now that triggered it, brought it all back to the surface, and now what are they worried about? Think about it. You have been sexually abused. What are you worried about? It's going to happen again. Or it's going to happen to one of my children. Or what if that guy does it to someone else? I should have said something. You see how what happened in the past is now affecting their ability to deal with the future. So even in a sense like that, sometimes in counseling, we have to go back and help them, okay, what did happen in the past? How, how are you thinking about that? It could be someone who's, who spoke badly to a coworker about his boss. And then his boss starts acting differently around him. What, what is he worried about? What is he worried about? I said something to my coworker. My boss is acting differently. What is he anxious about? I wonder if my coworker said something to my boss, and now he's worried about it past is affecting the future. So that's idolatry. Worry expresses idolatry in the heart, and we tend to have an inordinate focus on these three things. This is what results from idolatry in the hearts, things, goals, and people. Now we get this from the text, things. Look at verses 19 and 21. Notice Jesus says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, what church? There will your heart be also. So things, we start to store up treasure, not in heaven, but on earth. We're focused on accumulating a job, a clothes washer. This is very specific because it just happened to me. Our clothes washer is on the fritz. We don't have the money to buy a new one. It kind of still works. I realized I was spending a lot of time researching washing machines and trying to figure out, okay, let's get one on sale. Let's wait for Amazon Prime Day or Amazon Prime Day. And, you know, that's hard hard to say. Uh, I started, you know, again, when I have a problem, what do I do? Fix it. And I realized I was getting anxious about it. Even something as simple as fixing a, a clothes washing machine. John MacArthur says this, I love this, focusing on earthly treasures produces earthly affections. It blinds our spiritual vision and draws us away from serving God. It's good, isn't it? There's a reason Jesus says don't store up treasure here, do it there, because if you're storing up treasure there, where are you focused? Here. And it draws you away from the spiritual vision of where God is. Where is God? He's up there. And is he in control of up there and down here? Yes. So it's not just things, though. It's also goals. Notice what verse 22 and verse 23 says. Now, typically when people teach this passage, they just want to skip these two verses because they're really confusing. Notice what it says. The eye is the lamp of the body. So then if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? What in the world are those two verses doing in the middle of store up treasure in heaven and you can't serve two masters? Does that make any sense? Well, it does. 
Because he's talking about your, your goals and your devotion. I, in this case, is the lamp or the lens of the body, isn't it? Light comes in through it, allows me to see, to comprehend. And in this case, the eye, Jesus is using the eye to represent the heart. Light enters through the eye, and in the same way, a clear eye is a heart that has single-minded devotion. If my heart is clouded, then I'm not devoted to him. I'm devoted to, to me and my things and my goals. But a clear eye means I'm seeing things rightly, and I'm focused where? On him. Because after all, what does 2 Corinthians 5.9 call us to do? I make it my ambition, whether home or absent, to be pleasing to him. That should be my goal. And a clear heart will be focused on pleasing God. So think about my wife's health, respect of coworkers. Hey, someone lied about me. What's my goal? To clear my name. In Albania, parking was horrific. It was bad. I realized that I didn't want to go out at night in certain parts of the city, and I would actually feel what I called killer butterflies. Have you ever had that feeling where you just kind of get that, and your breathing is a little shallow? And I was getting that way over parking space. Now, for any of you who have been to Albania, you're like, well, I can kind of see they drive like mad people. Why was I getting anxious? Because the goal of acquiring a parking spot and driving around and around and dropping Shelly off and then, oh, and then people are hitting you. And I mean, literally, I got hit on my moped like three times. and I mean, it was just crazy. Anxiousness, even over something as simple as a parking space, the goal of finding it. Things, goals, what about people? What does verse 24 say? No one can serve two masters, for either will he hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. And when you serve wealth, who are you really serving? What does wealth bring you? Respect, prestige, things, vacation, pleasure. What are all those things focused on? You. So it's about people. It's either going to be God or self. Now what about someone like Bill Gates? Who serves other people? Is that pleasing to the Lord? Depends on his motive. Is he giving for a tax break? Is he giving because it makes him feel good? Is he giving because it's expected? I'm one of the richest people in the world. Of course, I have to give. Is he doing that because that was the way he was raised? Is he doing that because his wife tells him to? Or is he doing it because it pleases God when he serves others? So sometimes we say, well, I'm serving somebody, but we're actually serving someone because we really want something in return, or it's about us. So people, sometimes people can be an idol. This can be a fair man issue. Uh, what was I struggling with? Healing Shelley. The reality is this was very inconvenient to my life. That seems weird that I would say that, doesn't it? Shelly getting a brain tumor stopped my life. I was just getting ready to start teaching another class in the seminary. Uh, my language was blossoming. I was finally preaching in Albanian and doing counseling and discipling in Albanian. It was like ministry was going great. Our life was going great. Support was great. Everything was great. And then God gave my wife a brain tumor. What do you think I was fixated on? God fixed this. 
How about an obedient child? How can an obedient child become an idol of my heart? I want so badly, and maybe it starts off right, I want so badly for them to love and delight in their Lord, but then that, it's almost like the cart before the horse. I forget the whole point of it is not external obedience. It's what? It's obedience from the heart. Even my child's obedience can become an idol. So an idol is anything or anyone that begins to capture our hearts, our minds, and our affections more than God. It's living on substitutes. It's exchanging the one true living God for a counterfeit, for something or someone else. Now the things that you worry about, this is important, the things that you worry about reveal your idols. Think about that. What I'm fixated on, those are the things that typically reveal the idols of my heart. Something like finding a spouse or getting a promotion or my health My money, my safety, my success, children, people's opinions, all of those things. So sometimes we have to ask these four questions. Am I willing to sin to get it? If I am willing to sin to get it, then it's an idol of my heart. And sometimes in counseling, we get trained to listen for certain words. You Listen, do you think these or do you say these? I need it. I must have it. I can't live without it. I won't. What are we saying? Absolutely, I have to have that. Sometimes those are indicative that it's an idol. Uh, another question, am I willing to sin if I don't get it? Think about that. Am I willing to sin if I don't get what I am set on? Let's say that I get promised a promotion. And the boss tells me. And the six months later, the boss gives it to someone else. You promised that to me. And then I begin bad-mouthing my boss. What might that be an indication of? I was setting my hope on what? That promotion. And when God took it away, the sin of gossip and slander indicated that I had set my heart on that promotion. Is it wrong to want to be promoted? No, especially if I worked hard and the boss acknowledged that. But if I'm willing to sin because I didn't get it, that's it's an idol. How about this? Am I willing to sin if I think I'm going to lose this? This is even worse. It hasn't actually happened. I'm just afraid it's not going to happen. So maybe I lie to prevent the loss of my job. And then fourth, do I run to it as a refuge instead of God? Meaning, do I put my hope in it? Instead of running to God, instead of going to prayer, am I running to this? Is it really important how many social media likes I have? I don't know about you, but I always try to have at least one more Facebook friend than my wife, Shelly. Because I know you guys like her more, but if I have one more Facebook friend than her, it makes me feel wanted. Think about that. For some people, this is what they live for. How about entertainment? Do we run to entertainment? To numb? How about alcohol? How about drugs? For me, it's fixing things or people. So I don't listen well because I listen enough to identify the problem and then I jump in and swoop in and try to fix it. Even that can be an idol. Now it's important for us to recognize that Jesus declares very clearly that you cannot serve God in something or someone else simultaneously. Is that clear for us? What does verse 24 say? No one can serve two masters. No one can. So in any given moment, you have to ask yourself, what are we fixing our hope in? That's why 
genuine, God-honoring concern and care can be right and godly and holy and focused and moving me to action, and then in a moment, it becomes what? Sinful worry and anxiety. You can't serve two masters at the same time. It's either going to be this or it's going to be this. There's no one foot here and one foot here. So recognize that. And it can change. And with God's help, when that happens, you're like, wait a minute. I'm starting to feel the symptoms of worry and anxiety. Why am I doing this? What am I fixing my hope on? What am I putting my trust in? And then you stop and you go, God, would you reveal this to me? And then you go back to these texts and you read it and you go, oh, that's what it is. That's why. That's the motive of my heart. So what's the solution for idolatry? Well, it's repentance. A a warrior needs to be called to repent of their false master, their false gods, their false refuge. They must renew their faith in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Repentance of idolatry must be the solution. And when you talk to people who are anxious, they don't want to hear that. Why? It doesn't seem like that's going to change anything. What do they think is the solution for worry and anxiety? Don't fix what's in here. What do they want fixed or changed? Fix that. Fix him. Fix her. Take it away. Hit the rewind button. And they're not even focused on the real issue, and that's what's going on in their heart. Because repentance really is hopeful because it corrects our gaze and redirects our hope and trust back to Christ. Isn't that what Hebrews 12, 1 to 3 says? If you want to run this race with endurance and and cast aside the things that that entangle you and and hop over the things that will trip you up, what does verse 2 say? Fix your eyes on Christ because he alone is the author and perfecter of your faith. So that, verse 3, you will not grow weary and lose heart. The solution is redirecting your gaze from whatever it is that has stolen you from Christ and, and to repent and say, God, forgive me for putting my trust and my hope in that. M.D. Anderson is not my hope. They may be something that you use in a way that I can care for my wife, but M.D. Anderson is not my hope. That brain surgery is not my hope. My hope is you. And I've thought about this. What if God killed my wife? I mean, the brain surgery went well. It wasn't cancer. They got it out. It hasn't grown back in over two years. Praise God. But what if God took my wife? Would I be singing the same song? I hope so. Because the reality is that even if God had taken my wife from me and from our four precious children, would he have comforted me and cared for me and taken care of me? Would he? Yes. And so I had to put all of those fears out of my mind before they did the surgery. Because again, they weren't sure if it was cancer or not. Before they did the surgery, it was like, well, we're going to wait till it grows. We're going to leave it in there. And I'm like, you're going to do What? Idols springing forth out of my nostrils, out of my ears, out of my mouth. Building them in my backseat of my car as I'm driving my wife to MD Anderson. So 
So a worrier must be called to repent because otherwise we're left with what the world has to offer, which is behavior modification. In fact, I had a friend who went and saw a Christian psychologist who was struggling with OCD and anxiety. And this Christian psychologist said, when you start to feel worry, what I want you to do is a simple technique that's going to get your mind off of what you're worrying about. Try it. No, seriously, try it. Faster. Wow, Ernest, you're really fast. When you're doing that, what are you thinking about? Does it work? Yeah. And so this person walked away going, wow, thanks, Doc, that really helped me. But after a while, what happened to his hand? He got arthritis. He got tired. And so I saw him, and it's like, why are you doing that? He's like doing it all the time. Behavior modification doesn't really change. It may help relieve symptoms. And you know what? I got to tell you, I'm not going to condemn him for trying something and trying to get his mind off of it. And if that brings him some relief, I'm thanking the Lord for that. Just like MD Anderson and, and medicine helped my wife in her situation. But the issue is, is he putting his hope and his trust in that? And that's where I had to, to challenge my friend. So be careful you don't judge someone because they've gotten some of that help and it's finding, they're finding relief from that. I think sometimes here in our church, especially in the counseling realm, we are so quick to judge people. Oh, you don't believe exactly what ACBC trains us to do. And be gracious. I'm saying that to myself first and foremost. So what's the point? Anxiety is a blatant distrust of the power and love of God. Because in John 16, Christ warns his disciples that in this world they will have what? Tribulation. They're going to have trouble. And this is the trouble that comes from living in an imperfect fallen world. But then he tells them what? In that same text, but take courage for I have what? Overcome the world. You're going to have trouble. You are a sinner living in a sin-fallen world. But guess what? I have overcome this world. Take courage. Trust in me. And that's the same thing that we must do. So we have to allow God to do his work. Let's go to that last point. Worry is unbelief and the solution is faith. Worry is unbelief and the solution is faith. Piper wrote a great book called Future Grace. That is the whole book is on this point. And he talks about different sin struggles that we face. And he connects it that this, if you struggle with this sin and this is a pattern in your life, it's because you do not believe in God. It's a phenomenal book. I encourage you to read it. Now, worry is unbelief, and the solution is faith. Chris, where in the world are you getting this from? Well, turn over to verse 30. Because what does he say? But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? There it is. Ding, ding, ding. So Jesus himself identifies the problem. It's people of little faith. So worry, then, is the fruit of remaining unbelief. Worry is the doubt in a Christian. And the presence of worry indicates that there is something or someone that I am possibly trusting in other than God. And when we're worrying, we must identify the specific idols and the lies that are ruling our hearts, and we must confess them as sin. Now, what could possibly be the fruit of not trusting God before Shell's brain surgery? Think about that. What would the, the fruit of that be? I, I am 
I'm struggling with trusting God. I'm focused on all the practical things. I'm getting a flight from Houston, to, from Albania to Houston. Uh, we were trying to get a reference to get into MD Anderson. I didn't realize you can't just show up. You have to like have a reference and you have to know somebody. And it was a long process and there was a waiting list. All of that, I'm like, what are we going to do? Get immediate help with her dizziness and her pain. What was the fruit of all that? Anger. God, why? Critical. How come Turkish Airlines won't help us? Don't they understand my wife's condition? I became snappy and sharp. Sharp tone with my girls, with my wife even. Honey, I'm trying to help you. What do you want? Think about that. I am not trusting in the Lord because I'm so focused on trying to fix this and what comes out of that unbelief is what? More sin. And what Galatians 5 describes is deeds of the flesh. I was tempted to trust in me. But the fruit of repentance for a warrior will be manifesting faith in God by disciplining our mind to focus on a couple things. First, God's care for mankind. And then we get this from our text, verses 25 to 30. I don't have time to read it. But he's talking about how God cares for the birds and, and the lilies of the valley. And it's the argument from the lesser to the greater. If God is going to care for the birds, they, they don't fly out going, where are, where are the worms? Where are the worms? What? They just fly out. Oh, there's a worm. Oh, there's a worm. And they, they are fed. God cares for his creatures. They don't even have a soul. God gave you a soul. Are you really worried that God takes care of the lesser creatures that he's not going to take care of you? That's really the argument that Jesus is making here. In fact, in verse 27, notice what Jesus says. This is kind of convicting. In verse 27, he says, Who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? <laughs> Does worry work? Does it help? No. In fact, what does it do? It, it shortens your life. Think about that. In fact, I, did, I Google this. Does stress affect the longevity of my life? And you will be amazed at all the medical research that they've done that shows that stress and anxiety will shorten your life. It affects your, your organs. It affects your heart. It affects all kinds of things with stress. If you worry, you will die sooner. Jesus said it first. It's not going to add another year to your life. In fact, what will it do? It will take away so trust in God's care for mankind. Secondly, trust in God's omniscience, that he knows our needs. What does verse 31 and 32 say? It says, do not worry then, saying, what will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all of these things. What does the heavenly Father know? What you need. He knows. The Gentiles who don't know God, they don't trust in God. They're out there trying to find out, what do we, do we need? We need... God knows what you need, Christian. Trust in him. He's omniscient. And, and really, that what Jesus is saying is to ask these kind of questions is to behave like an unbeliever. That's why he brings up the Gentiles. This is the kind of things they ask. You're acting like one without faith. Amazing. And think about this, church. I love this. If God... He can create us. He can redeem us. He can take us from hell to heaven. He can give us eternal life. Why would we think that he can't take care of us tomorrow? 
It is illogical. It's incomprehensible. And yet you and I struggle with this, don't we? So trust in God's omniscience. Trust in God's promises. I love this one. Verse 33, but seek first, what? His kingdom, his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. What is that? It's a promise. You seek first him and his kingdom. You store up treasure in heaven. And what will he do? He will give you what you need. I promise. Philippians 4.19. This is a great passage. I don't have time to read it, but I'm going to. Philippians 4.19 says, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at la- Oh, wait, sorry, that's verse 10. I need glasses. Verse 19, And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. And my God will supply all your, what? Needs. According to what? According to what? To his riches in glory. Bill Gates, possibly one of the richest men alive today, if he put you in his inheritance and he decided to start giving you all that he owned, there would be an end. It would come to an end. Will there ever be an end to God's riches? Will it ever stop? No. Because his riches are infinite. Because God is infinite. And so when he promises you that he will take care of you, trust in me, that's what he means. Think about this. Supplying all of our needs is his concern, not mine. Think about that next time you start to worry because you don't know how to pay a bill or you don't know how you're going to take care of something or you, you don't know how, what the future holds for you. Think about this. Supplying all of our needs, that's your concern, God, not mine. Now, I still have the responsibility to do and plan and be responsible and be a good steward, but I'm not going to worry about it. You will take care of all of these things. The reality is the more that we know God, the more that we will trust him, the less anxiety we will have. I love what Piper said. This is from that Future Grace book. He said, sin is what you do when your heart is not satisfied with God. No one sins out of duty. We sin because it holds out some promise of happiness. And that promise enslaves us until we believe that God is more to be desired than life itself. Psalm 63.3. Which means that the power of sin's promise is broken by the power of God's. What does he mean? Sin is holding a promise, saying if you do this, it'll make you happy, it'll satisfy you. Do it your way, how you feel. And the Bible is saying, no, do it God's way. God promises you. And God's promise, if you trust in it, will break the power of sin's promise. It's true. And then fourth, pleasing God by caring for today's responsibilities. Verse 34, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Today has enough real problems. Don't think up possible problems for tomorrow. Take care of what's today. Instead, trust in God's grace. Obey. Respond to God's, uh, to circumstances in a God-pleasing way. And this is really how you defeat that spin cycle that we talked about. Well, E, the idolatry and unbelief of worries to be replaced by worship of and faith in God. And this is really what true faith does. It produces worship. And this is going to manifest itself in a life that's marked by these three things. Now turn over to Philippians 4. I'm just going to go through this really quick and then we'll finish. In fact, I 
think we know this passage pretty well. Then I'm just going to let you study that on your own. Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So what this repentance will look like is you will begin to have right praying. You will say, God, I need your help. You will confess worry as sin. You'll develop thankfulness and gratitude because the more your gratitude grows for God and his plans, what happens to worry? It shrinks. And worry is really a means to bring us closer to God as we learn to trust him through our difficulty. So you trust in his peace and you pray. You depend on him. True faith will produce right praying, but it also produces right thinking. Notice verse 8. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repair or repute, If there's any excellence, if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these. Think on these. That's what he's saying. Faith, clear conscience, and thankfulness frees the mind to be used correctly. So we have to discipline our mind to dwell on these things, to dwell on what's true. And so when I was struggling with Shelly possibly dying, I said, that I don't know if that's going to happen or not, God, so i got to trust that you are going to do what's best for your glory and for me. I choose to dwell on that truth because right now that's what I know. I do not know what tomorrow holds. I don't know if it's cancer. I don't know if she's gonna survive the surgery, but I do know that you are my God. And I had to set my mind on what was true. Colossians 3, 2. In fact, I was encouraging, I visited someone in the hospital today and I was encouraging them with these passages. John 14, 1 Peter 5, 6 to 7. Read that one. I love that one. In all the Psalms, Psalm 27, Psalm 37, Psalm 46, Psalm 56. In fact, George Hepner in this very room on Sunday was talking about when God took Jeannie home, what Psalm did God use to restore his soul? Psalm 23. So study and meditate on the word so that you think rightly in the middle of that. And then write acting, and that's what we see in verse 9. The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, do these things, and the God of peace will be with you. You've got to focus your attention. When you are feeling yourself caught in that, that worry and this, the, your mind is going round and round, you have to focus your attention and energy on fulfilling today's responsibilities to the glory of God. You deal with today's problems and concerns. Recognizing that doesn't mean they're always going to go away. You can start working on something And it keeps dragging on. There's no promise that just because you obey, God's going to take it away. But you can have hope that as you strive to please God in it and respond rightly moment by moment, that he's changing you even if your problems don't change. And the reality is for us, Shelly's headache continues. It's affected her ability to function. She can't be out as long. Uh, We go on vacation. Vacation is different now. She can't do as much as she used to because she has to go lay down and rest. It may never get better. But she still has to learn how to respond rightly to chronic pain. The reality is, practical suggestion, when you find yourself beginning to worry or feel anxious, I just want to encourage you to stop, take a piece of paper and answer these three questions. What is my problem as I see it? What's causing my anxiety, my, worship, my, my worry? What does God want me to do about it? That involves going and looking in the scripture and maybe coming and talking to someone who, maybe you're like, I don't know what the Bible says. Well, come talk to one of us. We'd love to walk you through that. What does God want you to do about that situation? And then when, where, and how shall I begin? What does that look like right now? In right praying, in right thinking, in right acting. 
And sometimes you can't work on the problem, but God just wants you to pray and wait on him. That problem, my problem is someone else, and I can't fix them. I can't change them, and I'm worried about it. But I can work on me, and I can trust them with God. I mean, think about 2 Corinthians twelve seven. How many times did Paul ask for the thorn to be removed? Three times. What did God say? Three times. No, no, no. And then what does Paul say? My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in what? Weakness. Sometimes the weaker we are, the more God's divine grace shines forth. And so we just got to trust and obey. And you see the progression here. Right praying leads to right thinking, which leads to further right actions. Well, I know we went over this quickly, examined four aspects of worry so that we might learn how to deal with worry and anxiety God's way. I just want to encourage you, when we understand what sinful worry truly is, we're going to find help and hope in God. And some of you, you hear this truth, you see it on the page, you're like, I don't know how to do this. We would love to help you, walk with you, graciously, patiently. So if you struggle with worry and anxiety, please come talk to me, come talk to Mike, come talk to any of our staff or elders. We would love to be able to encourage you and walk with you. Maybe you got someone in women's Bible study or men's Bible study or grow group, wherever it is, your spouse. I trust that God's grace would daily continue to sustain and care for you during the seasons of trial, difficulty, and concern. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the opportunity to study your word and for the clarity that it brings. Thank you so much for the opportunity that we have to learn to trust you. And I pray that if there is any idolatry, if there is any unbelief, that you would help us to repent and that you would help us to truly worship you and set our trust and faith in you. Lord God, for anyone that is going through a difficult season right now, they are facing the great chasm of the unknown. Lord, would you and your spirit comfort them by the word of God and the power of the spirit in them? Would you help them to lean not on their own understanding but on you, to trust that you will make their path straight? And would you help us as a church to come alongside them and comfort them in this season? Because that's what you have saved us and called us to do, to care and to be concerned for one another. It's in the precious name of Christ we pray, amen.